Welcome to today's ILTA podcast entitled How to Effectively Balance Insider Risk and Employee Privacy. My name is Corey Wrights, Cybersurance Architect at Sandia National Laboratories, and I will be the moderator for today's session. I'm thrilled to be joined by today's speakers, Josh Smith, a Senior IT Security Analyst at Ogletree Deacons, and Michael Tice, Chief Engineer and Assistant Director for Research at the National Insider Threat Center, CERT SCI, Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome, Josh and Michael. Hey, welcome. Glad to be here. Hey, Corey. Uh, pleasure to be here with you today. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, Josh, would you mind just taking a, a little bit of time to introduce yourself, and then um, we'll have Michael do the same to give a little detail about him himself. Sure. Thanks, Corey. Um, my name is Josh Smith, um, obviously based here at Ogletree Deacons in Greenville, South Carolina. We're a mainly an employment law firm, and I, uh, I run our information security GRC practice here. And uh, it's just a pleasure to be here with you today and to, to meet all of you fine folks. Thank you. Michael? Oh, yeah. Uh, again, happy to be here. Uh, just a little bit of quick rundown. I have a, I'm a retired counterintelligence special agent, which I did for about 25 years, uh, retiring after two assignments as a special agent in charge. But I'm also a computer systems engineer, which I'd done concurrently for about 30 years. So here at Carnegie Mellon at the uh, CERT, uh, we, I am the chief engineer for strategic engagements, which means I help both government and industry programs build their insider threat programs or their insider risk programs. And I've been doing that uh, now since about 2011. Awesome. Well, I think we have a wealth of knowledge on the call and looking forward to your uh, differing perspectives and, and experiences. So let's get to the first question. To help those who are just starting to create an insider threat or insider trust program, what are some available resources that you would recommend that they check out? And let's start with Josh. Sure, thanks, Corey. Uh, one of the really beneficial guides that I first happened upon was the um, Insider Threat Mitigation Guide from CISA. Um, it, it's really, really dynamic. It includes many elements from, say, um, the National Calendar Intelligence and Security Center, the NCSC, um, and it's really just a step-by-step -step guide that you know that finds insider risk, insider threat, um, how to to detect and identify, um, and assess and manage and remediate those threats. So it's a really good step-by-step -step resource. Um, pretty comprehensive um, from a general nature to help you get your plan um, started and off the ground. And I'm sure Michael will talk about this for a little bit, but um, the CERT Insider Threat Center. Um, they have all kinds of materials available from assessments to education, even certification. Um, so those are really two two of the main things that we kind of evaluated here. Awesome. So CISA and CERT, what they've provided. Michael? Yeah, and I, I'm going to endeavor not to repeat uh, if I can avoid it. So uh, <laughs> what I would say is for the our Insider Threat Center, we've been doing research on insider threat since about 2001. And we have, in the last couple of years, gone away from the word threat and gone to risk because we think that risk management is a bigger, broader process rather than threat kind of sounds like something bad already happened and you're trying to respond to it. So we're thinking of it more of a bigger management process like you would for enterprise risk management. So one specific thing, if I would point to ours is the common sense guide, which is still called the common sense guide to mitigating insider threats though now we would call it to managing insider risk. Uh, it's in its seventh edition. You can find it. It's free on our website. Almost everything on our website is free, by the way. Another good resource is the National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST. 
800-53, which I believe is in Rev 5 right now, uh, publicly released, has a lot of good insider threat controls. Uh, so those might be some things you could look at if you're trying to get your program started saying, do we already do this? Maybe we already do it for some other reason. And now uh, we can apply it to insider threat or insider risk. And then uh, lastly, uh, Josh mentioned the, uh, the Department of Defense version, but there is also the National Insider Threat Task Force, which is under the Director of National Intelligence called the NITF, N-I-T-T-F. And you can search and they have lots of free resources also, including some you know, minimum standards that government agencies have to follow, but they're also just best practices and a guide how to implement those types of things. They've also uh, taken a crack at doing like a maturity framework as well. Okay. Awesome. So it sounds like a lot of government materials. Um, has there been any, any work done on the non-government side in insider threat that, that might be of interest too that you've run across? Uh, well, I would say that our work is on the non-government side. So in other words, yeah. it can work Turn for you. government, but it's also for industry. Gotcha. So we equally apply that. We are a federally funded research and development center, and we're one of the only ones who's actually authorized in the Department of Defense to work with industry. So we've actually helped industry start from either scratch to, to build an insider risk program, or to those who maybe have had one running for five or 10 years to help them improve it. And so that common sense guide would still apply uh, to industry as well as nonprofits, you know, it, uh, academia, anybody. Awesome. Okay. I'm glad we pointed that out. Um, some good materials there. I'm going to check out a couple of those websites. Some of them I've heard of, but not all of them. So thank you for, for sharing. Uh, moving on to our second question. We'll start with Michael on this one. Uh, what are some of the insider risk best practices that you've found to be invaluable uh, when helping people to stand up a program or to stand up your own? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, if I were trying to say this succinctly, I guess the point would be start with a good business case. Why are you building your program? For many years, I ran into programs who said, well, we had some money left over and they said, spend it. So we went out and bought a tool for insider threat and now we're trying to build a program. Really start with a business case. What's the onus for building this? What is it that you're trying to protect? Which leads you to the next thing. What are those critical assets? Uh, and the most common things I get are, everything's a critical asset, which of course it isn't. What are the critical assets that enable your mission and that if those get hurt, you can't do your job today. And then, uh, once you have those assets, those critical assets laid out, then you think about, well, what are the threats to them? Build use cases. And then once you have the use cases, meaning who could attack this threat? How could they attack it? What, we, what would we be looking for? Now I know how to build out my program, how to get started. You know, what are the things I got to protect? What I got to protect it from? What tools could I use? What methods could I use to, to uh, observe those types of artifacts that might be in my data? Awesome. Okay. That's, that's great. So identify what you have of value, then what are the threats to what you have of value? And then what behaviors would you be looking for basically to, to yeah. identify what's, what might be happening? To tell you okay. that someone's trying to hurt those assets, right? I like it. Um, Josh, how would you uh, approach that question? Yeah. And, and really many of the, the same things that Michael said, I, I, I tend to echo your Insider risk program should really be a part of your comprehensive risk assessment program. 
um, evaluate your people and your processes. And, and like kind of like Michael said, determine where there are opportunities to mitigate that risk um, and really tailor your approach. I think it's really good to tailor the approach for, for your unique environment. And that comes from doing that risk assessment. Um, another thing that I, that I think is really important is to uh, make sure you have clear policies established um, and make sure those are communicated and, and really signed off on to make sure that what you're trying to do is is um, communicated amongst the organization and that everyone's aware, you know, what what the impacts would be. Um, and education, I think education is really, really important um, to, to educate em employees on what insider risk is and how to look for it and how to detect it and even establish a, a reporting mechanism. Um, I think that's a really good part of a program of best practice. Um, and then... As a side note, I think um, it was really important for us to understand that, you know, there's there's an HR element. It's not always, um, not every act is specifically malicious, not intended to hurt your organization, but some of the, some acts, some employees, for say, may may do could harm the organization. So, um, if you're familiar with CISSP, they talk about um, job fatigue and job rotation and mandatory vacation, some of those things to to implement to make sure that um, you remove that HR that human element. Um, of that's not completely technical but can lead to some technical things so um, those are some key points that that we really like to uh, like to communicate and flesh out and we use as best practices here great so what i took away from that was tailor your approach to your unique situation make sure you have clear processes and everyone's aware of those processes educate your workforce and then stay in alignment with hr so exactly. i think those are great I, I liked what you pointed out about uh you know, focusing on the, the human side of, of making sure that job fatigue is addressed and right. people are content in their situation as much as possible. Awesome. Okay. I well, to echo with, oh, yeah. uh, what Josh said about that, you know, ultimately when we're talking about internal risk or insider risk, we're talking about human beings, right? So it is all about the human beings. It's all about that. It's not, no computers are trying to hurt us. Right. It's it's yeah. the human beings who are using the computers potentially either improperly or for a nefarious purpose. So it really gets down to you have to have good behavioral sciences, good understanding of human beings and what their motivations are. Zach, it's all about the people. Right. Thanks for reiterating the, the importance of focusing on that element. Uh, our next question is about how we how we can create a program that is effective at mitigating insider risk, but also respects employees' privacy rights. And I think this is a nice um, follow-up question to what we were just touching on. How do you recommend we approach that balance? And, and how can we always be mindful of, of the human element and, and the privacy rights of those who, who work for the company? Josh, would you be able to start us off on that? That topic. Yeah, I'll, I'll approach this more from a non-technical side in the beginning. Um, you know, there's always that phrase that, you know, with great authority comes great responsibility. And a part of that is, you know, making sure you have clear and defined policies as to, as to how you do things in your program and, and what the expectations are. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, I think it's a possibility to, to do insider risk management with, with um, in respecting those employee privacy rights. Um, you know, you just, you have to be transparent. You have to communicate in a clear definition of, of what's happening. Um, and also part of it is, is having effective monitoring tools. I think that if you have some tools that aggregate your alerts and um, and some of the data, so you're not having to pour through everyone's, say, for instance, email, you're not going to look through everyone's email to look for risk. 
Um, mm -hmm. And so some of those tools can, can go a long way to help strike the balance you need to protect organization versus um, those privacy rights. And it's always, you know, best policy for me personally is just to make sure you communicate and let folks know what, what you're expecting and, you know, provide feedback. Got it. So expectation, good policies, be transparent, communicate, and then effective monitoring, um, good tools that combine your information in a way that is respectful. Right. Awesome. Michael, what, what would you add to that? So I agree with everything that Josh said. Uh, I'll just add two quick things. Uh, one that I strongly believe in, which I don't think is widely used yet, which is identity masking. And what I mean by that is, if I am an analyst who's reviewing data, do I really need to know who this person is right off the bat? Because now you have bias that can come into it and you have potential, you know, is, am I really doing this because there's something or am I really looking at invading someone's privacy, right? So how much information do I actually need? So a quick example might be, do I need to know the person's social security number? So there are a lot of tools out there now that will mask the social security number so you don't see it. But I'm saying, do you even know, need to know their name? I mean, is yeah. that really important? Do I just need to know a person with a job role of administrative assistant who works for a senior executive is suddenly dropping to a command prompt and running shell scripts, which I've never seen this person do before. Right. I could take that to leadership as an analyst and say, we have an anomaly here. They don't need to know the person's name yet either, right? It's just, does this sound like it's, now we've opened an incident. So now we have a case, we have procedures we're following. Now let's unmask who the person is. And then we find out, oh, yeah, that one person used to be a system administrator and changed careers and so has all this experience. Great. Nothing to worry about. But there was no reason to bring up the person's name in the first place. So that's what I call identity masking. Try to keep it uh, as uh, opaque as possible until someone has made a decision that we must follow this to a logical conclusion and either refute it or substantiate it. The, the second thing I'll mention is uh, broad applicability of policies. This is one of the things that we have uh, detected in our research that it can cause disgruntlement when people think that uh, things apply differently to different types of people. So maybe leadership doesn't have to do this, but we do, or that type of thing. So the idea being, uh, if it's a policy for one, it should be a policy for all. So for monitoring, you know, bulk email, we should be monitoring everyone's bulk email and not excluding the C-suite or anything like that. Yeah. If we're capturing keystrokes, it should be for everyone. So the question is, is it really that important to capture keystrokes? Because that's a big ask, right, to do it for the entire enterprise. So make sure your policies apply equally as much as possible until something has happened and you have to dig deeper and look in. But again, at that point, you have a process that's been kicked off that is now being overseen. And then you're looking at the privacy aspects every step of the way as you go along. Yeah, awesome points. Yeah. That, Michael, especially the, um, the identity masking. That's a good thought because, you know, we're as law firms, we're doing that with a lot of our client data. You know, we're masking the, the, the things that we don't want others to see. Uh, and that's, that's just a great point with the identity masking. I love it. Are you finding that for a while? Yeah. <laughs> are a lot of the tools that are available? Do they provide that option to to do the masking, or is that? I would say some still... tools do, uh, and usually though it's more around the 
blocking a social security number, making it fuzzy until you okay. say you have a case. Uh, not all of them are to the point where they're not showing you the name of the person or something, but you can modify that, right? So you could buy a tool and you could uh, have someone create a screen for you that just literally blocks over those areas. Uh, and then only once you've initiated a, a case or started an inquiry, then you would say, click, we have a number, we've all agreed this is something that needs to be looked at. And then those you know, boxes could be unblurred. Awesome. Great advice. Thank you both. Uh, moving on to our next question, and this one will start with uh, you, Michael. Uh, what are some future changes that you anticipate in the world of insider risk management in the next five years, looking at tools or regulations and processes, that type of thing? Wh where is the state of the art going? Well, I can tell you what I hope it's going to. I don't know that it will get there in five years. I think that uh, a lot of organizations right now are very focused on policy violation which is reasonable, right? Someone violates one of our policies, we need to know. They're taking our intellectual property, they're uh, defrauding us by claiming expenses they didn't have, you know, whatever it is. Policy violations, sure, important. What I'm hoping is that we get to a point where we're really thinking about protecting the employee. In other words, we see that the individual is under some type of stressors and they're just either don't have good coping skills or, you know, in other words, we've seen their behavior change. We're seeing that their performance is changing. Let's intercede now. There's no policy violation, but let's get them the help yeah. that they need to stay a good employee. And then that way, we're, we'll never have the bang, right? We'll never have the, the policy violation or at least very few of them. But once you have a policy violation, it's almost like... Uh, almost a bad investment in a sense, because now you have something you have to do. Is the employee going to be disgruntled? Is this, that, the other? Where if you're actually being proactive about it, you're keeping them good employees, you're avoiding the policy violation as much as possible. The last thing I'll mention is, I think that uh, we need to get rid of the black box thought process in the tools and analysis. And that's because when we look at things like artificial intelligence, uh, you can come up with a result and you could say, okay, that result, I can prove that that result is correct, but you can't always prove how the artificial intelligence got to that result. And so not, not to be confused with machine learning, but you know, some aspects of artificial intelligence, if you can't clearly explain that, I don't think you can get past the challenges of, was I unfairly targeted? Was I being you know, uh, looked at uh, differently than everybody else? So yeah. making sure that we push the vendors to say, if you can't explain how your algorithm came to this answer, then we can't use it in court. <laughs> we can't use it yeah. for HR actions. We can't, you know, because it leaves us up into too much liability. So right now it seems awesome because it's magical and it takes a lot of people out of the loop as far as I right. uh, don't need as many analysts, but I think it's fraught with danger. So I'll, I'll end with that. Two great points. Josh, what do you think? And those are really two of my thought points as well, um, especially in the area of AI. Like like Michael said, that you know there there are going to be a lot of developments in the AI area in the next five years. I mean, look at ChatGPT by OpenAI and and things like that nature. But like Michael said, it's going to be really important for um, law firms in particular to make sure that they don't get um, I don't want to say hoodwinked, but like sucked into these technologies that you you don't really know what's happening. You can't definitively say, hey, this is what happened and this is this is how and why. Um, so it's going to be really important as as AI progresses that we monitor it and make sure that um, we can explain what's going on and make sure that um, they're viable and you know legal tools for us to use. Um, 
Additionally, one of the other points that Michael mentioned about um, making checking your employees' uh, status is that there was a GRF summit um, this year earlier, and one of the topics was uh, about you know how to, how to effectively manage a CEO and and to make sure that um, you look at your top red flags. One of those top red flags was that an employee that had been passed over for a promotion twice in eighteen months was one of your top red flags to look at for insider insider risk. So, you know, those employee employee statuses and employee health and things like that in the culture are really important to uh, to make observations of. And lastly, I'll just end it. I think in the next five years, we'll see more, uh, more national in the United States uh, focus on uh, privacy. Uh, you know, we have individual states um, with their different privacy laws now that and a lot of them try to mimic GDPR and and such, but I think we may see a national policy at some point. So we just need to keep our eyes open and be abreast of that. So, you know, you never know how that may affect what you do inside your organization. All excellent points. Thank you both. Our fifth and final question is on how we can create an insider threat program that is either um, very public or very private. And really my question is, what do you recommend? Should a program be discreet and on the down low? Or should this be something that everyone's aware of? And let's start with you, Josh. What what are your thoughts about the the publicity or the awareness of an insider risk management program? Yeah, thanks, Corey. I, re- I really think that the awareness factor is very important. You know, it, it should be a public function. You know, we've we've already talked about it. And employee education um, on insider risk is very critical. And a publicly knowledge program can can even help deter risky behavior and also give others to a, a method to report it. So you don't you don't want you know your insider risk program just to be part of your IT development. You want it to be part of your whole organization. So the whole organization is aware and can and has a reporting method and feels comfortable reporting it. Um, and it just helps make sure that everybody's educated about the dynamics of insider insider risk and and to make sure that culture of reporting and, and being comfortable is there. Michael, what are your thoughts on this topic? You know, I think I, I already know where you're going, but <laughs> based on what you said so far. I agree with Josh, because if your program is discreet and not known, who who's going to report anything and who are they going to report it to? So you're going to get maybe anonymous uh, uh uh, tip lines or something like that, but anonymous is really hard to follow up on because you can't ask supplemental questions. It was like at night, was it last night or last week at night? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, mm-hmm. let's have an, an interaction. So I would say a program should be broadly communicated throughout the population, throughout the organization, so that employees know, leadership knows, supervisors know, managers know. that. And then how it's communicated is program is here to help protect employees, help employees, stay good employees. If you have a friend who's struggling, wouldn't you want to help that friend? That's what we want to do. We want to help that friend, right? So what's your messaging? Now, the discrete part of it is the secret sauce. So people will say to me things like, well, how many pages of printing before I set off an alert? And it's like, I don't know, one. And they're like, no, no, I mean, like, what do I set my trigger for? Uh, You know, whatever you come up with as far as your triggers, that's the part that should be discreet. Uh, you don't want to be explaining all the detail of how you go about things or what your levels are, because that's how people come up with countermeasures. Right, so right. broadly communicated, there is a program. We're here to help exactly what our uh, trigger levels are. That should be the discreet part. I like it. So public with we exist, we're here to help. Private with how we're detecting activity. Right. Great. Thank you. Well, 
Thank you so much, Josh and Michael, for your time. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with me and with uh, the ILTA membership. Uh, I want to thank the audience who will uh, soon be tuning into view and listen to this. And uh, I just want to wish all of you a great day and a great week. Take care. Thanks, Thanks. everyone. Thanks, Ward. Thank Glad you. Glad to be here.